choir sang, when I think about the Lord. When I think about the Lord. That's the, the really sermon series that we're doing now as a church, is thinking about who God is. The attributes of God. His mercy is more than our sin. His grace, that's an attribute of God. And so we're going to begin today by looking at an Old Testament passage and then a New Testament passage. But at the very beginning of this message, I must confess that of all the sermon series that I have preached in my life, this one is the most daunting. Because our God is unfathomable. He's incomprehensible. God is infinitely higher, wider, and deeper than any human understanding of who God is. Now, if you have your Bible or access to a Bible app, you can go first to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. You can also text FBC Notes to 77411 to get access to the sermon notes. Or if you have version the Bible app, click on Events and then First Baptist Church and you can find the notes that way as well. It was Desmond Tutu who once said, There is only one way to eat an elephant, a bite at a time. God is so much greater, so much more glorious than an elephant. But the principle of one bite at a time does make good sense for us. For that reason, I plan for the next 12 weeks to examine one attribute of God each Sunday. Now, you've thought about that elephant. I want you to think about something a lot better to look at. Visualize in your mind the most grand and glorious diamond that you've ever seen. And imagine you're holding that diamond in your hand. And you're looking closely at it, turning it in the light, seeing the beauty, the facets of that glorious creation. Our God cannot be taken into our own hands. But the concept of looking more closely at who God is, that is the principle I want us to think about. You know, my uh, grandmother, who's with Jesus, my mom's mom, went with my, my mom and my, me to try to pick out um, wedding engagement rings for my wife. This was over 23 years ago, and, and, and I remember going into one store, and when I would see the diamonds, I would, you know, I, that looks nice. I, I went first to the price tag. That's kind of how I am. And so, but then I, I saw the diamond itself, and, and I remember the one that we landed on. And it was great having my mom all there because she used to work at a diamond store, and she had an eye for a diamond. And when she held up that diamond that is now on Jennifer's finger, my wife's finger, Mama said, that diamond's perfect. She was right. 
She looked closely at that with the skilled eyes, eyes that God had given her, and she saw closely the beauty of that diamond. God is so glorious, He's so marvelous, so multifaceted, yet in this series we're going to try to look closely at all the attributes that we can handle of God. We're not going to cover all the attributes. That's why the series is entitled Attributes of God, not the attributes of God. If we cover all the attributes of God the way that we should, we'll be in this sermon series for a couple of years. And we'll never exhaust the fullness of who God is. So today, two scriptures we'll begin with. They're scriptures about who God is. Each week we'll be looking closely at one attribute, but today we're going to step back. That image of the stars. And, and look at God as a whole, taking two passages from the Bible and apply them to our lives. First, Isaiah 55 beginning in verse 8. With this sermon series, we are venturing into the realm of theology, and we need to have a proper posture. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, my thoughts, my ways are not yours. We must never think for a moment that in the realm of possibility that our ways as human beings and our thoughts as human beings can even compare to God's ways and God's thoughts. Our thoughts, our ways are not his. In fact, his are higher than ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's very high. So when the truth of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 settle into you, into me, it should bring you to a place of humility, which brings us to our first truth. We can know we are seeing God rightly. We can know that we truly know Him and are getting to know Him for all that He is when we respond to God with humility. The study of the knowledge of God, theology, has nothing to do with man with a microscope standing over from a place of authority or pride. No. There's a reason why back in the Middle Ages, they referred to theology as the queen of the sciences. Now, a lot of things have happened since the Middle Ages. A lot of good things have happened. There are many things about the Middle Ages that we're glad don't exist today in 2021. But theology has been put in the back seat, relegated to schools of divinity and seminaries, not seen as a true pursuit of knowledge, a true scientific study of immersing ourselves into who God is. For theology is that. Take the word apart. Ology, study of. Theos, God. It is the study of God. Sound theology. 
That is, seeing God for who God is. Sound theology, when applied to one's life, will always produce humility. It is possible to have an orthodox view of who God is and to have sound theology but not apply it to your daily life and live in a way that you're arrogant in charge of your own life that you believe the right things about God he's wise he's just he's loving yet you're on the throne of your life and that can never be the case that's not really sound proper theology being applied. The goal of this series is to take these attributes and to apply them to our lives. Romans chapter 11, look there. After pinning some of the most incredible verses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul erupts into a refrain, a magnificent refrain, Romans 11, 33 through 36. And if you've read Romans, this is very different the way that Paul is talking here based on the rest of this book leading up to these verses. He goes into all kinds of areas and says some amazing things, but he now erupts into praise. Oh, he says... The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him. Be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, 33-36 teach a second critical truth about what happens to a person when theological reflection of who God is takes place in our lives. First, we should be humbled when we rightly know God for who God is. Secondly, when we reflect rightly upon the nature of God, our theology produces doxology. Isn't it interesting that we have a song in the Christian church called the doxology, based on Scripture? highest praise to give to God for doxology doxa praise ology study of it is the praising of God and these profound truths that Paul pins in the book of Romans produce in this moment a volcanic eruption of praise to God we see Paul is no ivory tower theologian who is unmoved in his heart by these grand truths of who God is. His heart is on fire with the incredible depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He is mesmerized by the judgments and the ways of God there in verse 33. And in verse 34 and 35, he asks a series of questions that can only be answered this way. No one. He asked, who has known the mind of the Lord? 
No one. Who has been God's counselor? No one. Or who has given a gift to God that then God might have to repay that person? No one, Paul says. That is the implication of these questions. That is the only right answer to these questions. No man, no woman, no person on earth. And then in verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul's way of saying, God is all in all. And what does that make Paul do? Paul says, To him be glory forever. Amen. Theology. Rightly applied, always should produce doxology. We learn from the Apostle Paul. We learn from Isaiah to humble ourselves that God is not us. We learn from Paul this truth. Don't think for a moment that the study of who God is, theology, is boring dry or not relevant to your life here in 2021. In the first chapter of his monumental book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. (laughs) What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If Tozer is right, and he is, then we should gladly enter the realm of theology, the study of the attributes of God. For it's not just for the clergy, but for all people, in fact. Every person sitting here today, every person watching online that will watch later this week online, every person watching on television right now, this message, every person is a theologian. You can walk out the doors today and say, Pastor Cade said, I'm a theologian. You are a theologian because every person has a view in their mind of who God is. When you go to seminary and you talk all kind of theology stuff, sometimes folks will say, well, what's your theology? I'm trying to size you up, you know. Do you, do you lean more Calvinistic? Do you lean more Arminian? You know, what, what's your theology, right? Some of the questions you guys gave me over six years ago, those two thorough questionnaires that you gave me when you hired me, was trying to, where's Cade Land? What's his theology? What's his, what's his view of God, the church, right? Everybody has a theology. And what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, Tozer writes. Theology is not, I mean, it's not boring. It shouldn't be. As Rick Warren says, it's a sin to make the Bible boring. This is the most glorious book that's ever been written. 
We plumb the depths of who God is, and we read it time and time again and learn more facets of God, who He is. Theology is not just for the clergy, for all people. And my goal is that we all together take in who God is and apply that to our lives. Because when we glance and step back and look at the Lord, we will be humbled and our theology applied should produce doxology. Praise to God. This subject is the most important subject that you'll ever study in the school of life. Jesus Christ, John 17. Look there. In John 17, I read from that prayer of Jesus last week for my sermon about being in the world but not of the world. The very beginning of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, in verse 3, he says this. He's praying to his Father, and this is eternal life. That they, they are his disciples, that's us. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And if you know the context of where John 17 falls in the book of John, John 14, John 15, John 16, Jesus Christ has unpacked the Holy Spirit. And I would argue, eternal life is knowing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is eternal life, a personal relationship with God by His grace through faith in Jesus is the sum total of what our life is to be all about. When I said in Romans 11 that Paul's question had to be, questions had to be answered no one, I should have said, no human. <laughs> because do you know who knows the mind of the Lord according to Scripture? Romans 8, the Holy Spirit knows. And when you become a Christian, guess who comes to live inside of you? God, the Holy Spirit. And we have, as Paul writes in Corinthians, the very mind of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Knowing Jesus, knowing the Father, knowing the Spirit, knowing God is eternal life. And if knowing God is this critical to us, don't you think that our enemy will do everything he can to try to keep us from rightly knowing who God is? And that's exactly what we find at the very beginning of the Bible as God creates everything, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we come to Genesis 3. And what is it that the devil says to Eve and Adam? Did God really say that? God's holding back from you what he knows will make you wise. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's causing them to question their view of who their loving father is. And he is successful as Adam and Eve fall into sin. And the enemy has been deceiving people for thousands of years. If he can just distort just a little bit our view of God. You know, it's kind of like a ship long distance has to go to gets off a little bit, right? Just a little bit. I mean, 
go a long distance, that little angle becomes miles. And so he will seek to the enemy, the twist, to deceive, to distort our view of God. So I want to close this message, the last half of this message, as kind of giving some warning of three ways I believe the enemy tries to keep us from knowing who God rightly is. I'm going to talk about each one. We'll share some scripture where it applies and then give some, some illustrations to help you understand. So first illustration uh, to set up the first point is all three of my kids have played youth recreational sports, baseball, softball, um, basketball, soccer. That's in Opelika, that's in Wadawi, that's here. So I'm going to narrow it down to... Uh, Two kids. My son Carson was running uh, the words, the projection in the 10 o'clock service, and he said, yeah, Dad, you were talking about... I said, anyway, so I, I got my son. So um, he thought... So we've had several experiences with um, teammates and, and them being able to clearly see the ball, right? I mean, baseball, what's the adage? Keep your eye on the ball. So, so on one of our teams, um, baseball... There was a player, and, and he was a very good player. You know, when, in Little League Baseball, if the player knows what to do with the ball when the ball gets hit to him, that's, that's half the battle right there, right? And so this, this guy knew what to do. He could hit, he could throw, he could run. But I remember one game, um, about midseason, he gets in the batter's box, and he's got glasses on. And those glasses aren't fitting really well with his batting helmet, with the mask. And he gets up to swing at the, at the plate. And he either swung at one or two with the glasses on. He got frustrated. He walks back to the dugout, much to his family's chagrin. And he takes off those glasses. He goes back up and he strikes out. Now everybody that was in the stands knew this kid could, could hit. And the reason he struck out was because he couldn't clearly see the ball. Well, the next game and for the rest of the season, he had either new glasses or a new hat or a new helmet, but he had his glasses on the entire game, and he crushed the ball. He, he got inside the park home runs. The kid could just ball. He was great. But he had to be able to see clearly the ball in order to play the game. First way the enemy will come at us are human limitations. And we have them. We have blind spots. Our human limitations can hinder us from seeing clearly who God is. All kinds of ways. We're emotional creatures, aren't we? And our emotions, the enemy can, can push those buttons and cause us to not clearly know who God is. Our limitations can hinder our 2020 vision of God thought, what example in the Bible could I give? Well, I think about Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Where a master, Jesus says, had three servants. And in the parables of Jesus, the master is often representative of God. The master has three servants. He gives them talents. Talents are not skills and abilities like we think about the word talents. Talents here in the context are gold. It's measurements of gold amounts of money. To the one servant he gives five, to the second servant he gives two, to the third servant he gives one, five, two, and one talents to these 
servants. He commissions them. There's a period of time that the servants are apart from their master, but it comes time for them to give their report. And the one who had five said, Master, you gave me five talents. Here are five more. The master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few. I will set you now over more. Enter into the joy of your master. Servant two, Master, you gave me two talents. Here are two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over a lot. Enter now into the joy of your master. But then the third said, Master, I know that you are, and the Greek word used can be translated hard, harsh, or stern. I know you are a hard, harsh, stern man. So I took the talent you gave me, the one, and I buried it so I wouldn't lose it, so it wouldn't get stolen. And now I'm bringing back your talent to which the master said, you wicked, lazy servant. You could have put the talent among the, the bankers and gained interests. And the talent will be taken from you and given to the one who has the most. And he was not welcomed into the joy of his master. And I thought, it was the third servant's incorrect view of the master that dictated the way he lived his life with the talent that was given to him. From all we know from the parable, the master was not an unjust, cruel, harsh man. He seemed to be fair, equitable, good. But the one servant's view of the master that was not clear led to his destruction. There are many reasons why we can't see God clearly. Our emotions can cloud our vision. Our fears, our sin. One of the biggest could be, I've seen this, a father figure in life. A father, an earthly father who was maybe not there. Who was hard who was abusive, who was distant, who was not engaged. And many people's concept of God the Father is so shaped by their human experience of their earthly father, our sin, our past, our shame. We all have cataracts, blind spots that distorts seeing clearly who God is. And the enemy wants to push on those and try to make God out of focus. Second illustration to set the second point up. Cade finishes a sermon, we can go have lunch, right? <laughs> the Ferris family, of which I'm a part of, had five boys, all right? And I may have told this story before, but it's just too funny, i got to tell you again. So um, our favorite restaurants were buffets. All-you-can-eat buffets. Now, there was one all-you-can-eat buffet that the... Uh, Manager came out and talked to my dad and said, Mr. Ferris, here's the check. You guys cannot go to the buffet bar anymore. So I guess the um, advertisement for all-you-can-eat buffet was not true for the Ferris family of seven. My poor mother, surrounded by all these big guys who can eat. I ate 50 chicken wings from Quincy's one time in high school. 50! So anyway... Now, that's going back to the bar more than once. That's piling it on. But imagine you go to a buffet bar today for lunch, and all they give you is one plate. 
And some buffet bars are like that, salad bars, you got to go to the bar one time, and you got to figure out what you're going to put on the plate. You're going to choose what you like, what looks good, smells good, and you put it on your plate, and you eat it. There's a bunch of stuff you don't put on the plate, right? The enemy uses that against us. Number two, our preferences can lead us to be selective in what we think about God. Our preferences, our even lack of knowledge, a holistic knowledge of who God is, that can keep us from knowing God well. And we are tempted to focus on the attributes of God we like the most. I'll take some of that love, right? Some of that mercy on my plate. But we'll not take on or in the judgment, justice, wrath, jealousy of God. This sermon series will not cover every attribute of God, but it will cover a balanced palette of God that we might see a good picture of who God is because we must not be selective and pick and choose the things about God that we want. Or we end up making God into a God that suits us. So the enemy wants to do that. And in church history, if you want to do some more research, study the life of a man named Marcion. Marcion almost single-handedly destroyed the early church because of his version of the Bible and his version of God. Last illustration to set the third point up. So the enemy wants to cause us to have distorted vision, not seeing God clearly because of our human limitations. He would like for us to pick and choose based on our preferences, what we like about God. Third point coming shortly. My wife and I met at the University of North Alabama. It's a state, public, regional university, much like West Georgia, North Georgia, here in Georgia. And we met there, and, and we had a, a, a campus um, mascot and he wasn't just like, you know, I mean, I know Georgia's got the, got the bull, real bulldog on campus, and Auburn's got the real eagle, and my team, Bama, we don't have a real elephant on campus, but, but we had the greatest mascot of all. We had a lion, a real lion. And so you go by his cage, walk into class, it was state-of-the-art, huge, massive. He, all that Leo the lion needed was provided. I mean, so many pounds of meat a month. He'd just be laying around, you know, enjoying life. He'd go to class and Leo start roaring at certain times of the day. Hard to focus on the teacher teaching when the lion's roaring across the street. And then you go to a football game and there's Leo out of his big cage in this plexiglass trailer with a top on it and he's there on the sidelines near the cheerleaders are in front of him football team's playing and you see leo just prowling around in that cage i mean i'm it did cross my mind more than once man it'd be bad if leo gets out leo gets out of that cage with all these people people are running from football they're not running away from tackers they're running away from leo leo is i mean just deadly lying and so i am and i'm not trying to make a point that like all you know, all, all zoos are bad, and, and, and you know, I'm a, we should honor God's creation and love his creatures. But the point I want to make is that the University of North Alabama made Leo the lion serve their purposes. 
He was supposed to be the king of the jungle. Not walking around in a plexiglass cage at a football game. Humanity had made this lion into something that he really was, something much smaller than the glorious way that God had made him to be. Number three, our idolatrous hearts can and do distort God into someone or something that he is not. And this, of all three of the ways the enemy wants to entwine us, is the most damaging of all. What is our text? Exodus 32. The golden calf incident. Moses receiving the law of God on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. And the Israelites there at the base of the mountain with his brother Aaron in charge. They come to Aaron and say, we don't know where this Moses is. Come make for us gods who lead us out of Egypt. And Aaron gives in to their demands and, and receives gold from them. They had plundered from the Egyptians. And there they fashion a golden calf. And Aaron says, tomorrow we'll have a celebration, dedication to the Lord, looking at the golden calf, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. Now, Moses comes down from the mountain, and when he hears what's going on and sees what's going on, he is not happy. He breaks those tablets in half, and there is almost civil war and pestilence. It's bad, bad, bad. How can it be in Exodus 32, just 12 chapters before Exodus 20, where God speaks his Ten Commandments to the people of Israel and to us? And he begins it this way in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God. In other words, Israel, know who I am. Church, let us know who God is. And then he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Know who God is and know what God has done in your life. That's how God sets up the Ten Commandments. And then he says, Commandment 1, you shall have no other God before me. Commandment 2, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything and bow down to it. And here is Israel, forgetting who God is, forgetting who, what God has done, and then making God into something that he is not, the immortal, invisible, glorious God who speaks all things into existence is crafted into the image of a golden calf. And it's an abomination who God is. And Moses was consumed with the zeal for God's glory. Ground up that golden calf, sprinkled that gold on top of the water and made them drink it. Because what they had done was a terrible thing. Idolatry really is at the root of all sin. Now, I've said before that pride is at the root, and it is, but is pride not the worship of ourselves and the removing of God from His throne as the Lord of our lives? 
There's a reason why John Calvin said the heart is an idol-making factory. This is our great challenge, church, that we make God into someone or something that he is not. A genie God who bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity. Overemphasis on a God of wrath. That God hates everybody. And, and, no, speak of God's wrath. Speak of God's justice. Speak of God's love. Speak of God's, all of his attributes. So are we seeing God clearly today? Or is our vision distorted by the cataracts of the past or the blind spots of our sin? I pray these next 12 weeks will bring our vision into focus. To see God and know God for all that he is. Are we guilty of treating God like the buffet bar at a restaurant? Picking and choosing what we like to consume from God. Avoiding the attributes of God that are hard to swallow. Are we making God into something or someone that God is not? Are we putting other people, other things in God's place and taking God off his throne? We must head to head face these three challenges if we want to know who God is. Let us see God clearly that we might be humbled by all that he is. And may our theology that is for all of us, not just the preachers, but all of us, may our theology set our hearts on fire and lead us to doxology, giving God all the praise for from him and through him and to him are all things. Amen. Oh, Father, I have blind spots. Oh God, I am frail, weak, temperamental. But oh God, I pray your Holy Spirit would guard my tongue this summer that I might, with the skill of a Holy Spirit-inspired painter, paint a portrait of you for us to see with the Word of God that we might understand clearly, God, rightly who you are. Keep me humble. Keep us humble. Let us be led to praise because of who you are. Guard us from these things that the enemy wants to cause us because Lord what we think about when we think of you is the most important thing about us God eternal life is knowing you we'll spend all eternity enjoying your presence glorifying you and knowing you father son and spirit forever god i pray that we would put our hand to the plow and be your disciples immersing ourselves into the study of who you are burn within our hearts let us not be head knowledge christians oh thank you for the apostle paul whose heart was moved as he applied the glory god of who you are now god as we sing let us be moved from our theology into doxology and obedience we pray in jesus name amen let us stand together to sing our final song jesus said 
to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Today, you will never really begin the journey of knowing who God is until you, by faith, come to know who Jesus is because he's the key, right? If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus in the Gospels. Look at God the Son. God left the glories of heaven with all of his transcendence and splendor, and he became a man that we might know him and be known by him. Today, I've not shared the gospel clearly in this message, but if you want to come to know Jesus Christ, would you come forward? I'd love to pray with you, talk to you about how you might know him personally. He died in your place. You can trust him. He conquered death. Put your hope in him today. Today, this altar is always open for any decision, prayer, Join this church. We've had people join our church now in two of our services. Praise God for that. Let us be obedient. Some wonderful medley Anthony's put together for us. Let's just give God the doxology and praise he deserves and be obedient to his 